I want to begin today by uh, preaching first and worshiping last. Sounds good. That way you get me out of the way and we can focus on Jesus. Um, the latest magazine for our ministers um, came this fall. <clears throat> it's called the Influence Magazine. It's an ordained ministers, ministers of the, with the Assemblies of God, which we're affiliated with the Assemblies of God Church. Um, that's what denomination or affiliation, they don't like to call it a denomination. The Assemblies of God was always known as a movement, you know. And it was. It was the fastest growing and still the largest missionary producing Christian church evangelical in the world. And um, I'm blessed by that. But one thing that has happened since COVID and all evangelicals, churches in general, have suffered Abundant Life as well, we run about a third, I think, of the total attendance that we were before COVID, um, is the suffering of the, the church during this time. And I'm amazed by the statistics I'm constantly reading, but in this Influence magazine for this last quarter, it says de-churched America. There's some interesting things that I, I want to highlight. First of all, the, it talks, it's, it's two pastors, but it talks a lot about pastors and the statistics Barna survey asked a question in surveys during 21 and 22, and the result was alarming. It says the number of ministers actively considering leaving ministry rose from 29% in January 21 to 42% in 22 in March. That's incredible. That's 45% in 15 months. Isn't that something? Um, our leader, Doug Clay, goes on to write, he says, I'm very concerned. Um, Assembly of God has approximately 10,430. This is among all churches, but he says then the Assemblies of God has 10,438 lead pastors in America. And if we focus on them, 42% of those of 10,438 means 4,384 lead pastors um, were going to resign. Um, some other things I find really interesting is the expansion, of course, that happened in social media during the time of COVID. It was pre-COVID. Our church has been online for years. Um, we upped our ante and upped our technology and made our sound quality better a little bit. Um, but one of the things that's so amazing, and I'm finding this on the church's uh, the sermon uh, page on the church's Facebook uh, we have this sermon page, and it has 3,000 people that are connected to it. Social media, just connected. Um, one of the things that says, like a Pew Research poll says 72% of adults have at least one social media account in 2021. Um, young adults, 84% of those 30, and 81% of 30 to 49-year-olds. So most people do. I know some of you are saying, I don't have any social media, and it's of the devil, but it's okay. Um, most people have it. Um, it says Facebook, 70% of adults. Snapchat, 59%. Which, have you ever done Snapchat? My boys do that Snapchat thing and make their faces distorted and wacky. That is the weirdest, awesomest, terriblest thing I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> And then YouTube, it says, can I use terriblest? I just did. I created a new word, awesomeness. Um, and YouTube, 54%. In other words, 50 uh, people are congregating on social media. It talks about the massive shift. Um, 
I wanted to read you some of these things because they're indicative of what's going on in culture. Um, 43% of all U.S. adults attend or view religious services at least monthly. That's attending or viewing. Uh, Pew Research, 27% of Americans regularly uh, view religious services on screens. So this includes 10% who watch online and television and 17% attending both in person and online. Um, uh, Let's see, convenience was the most common factor driving this thing, of course. People like to just sit there in their PJs and click on it. 43% of those regularly attending are citing this as a major reason. Uh, 25% point to COVID. Even still, they don't want to come to church because of COVID fears. 23, Barna's survey says, four in 10 adult U.S. adults identifying as Christian said they would not likely attend their church if services moved only to online. So that's, that's 40%, but still that's pretty incredible. Pew Research found 21% of U.S. adults uh, use web apps like the Bible app. Did you know Abundant Life has an app? And you can scan the code in the bulletin and download the church app. And there's sermon notes on there. There's video from past uh, uh, church services. You can watch all of that on your phone from Abundant Life. We have that. That's a service we have. Um, 20% watch online. 15% listen to religious prod podcasts. We also have a podcast at Abundant Life. I don't know if you've been sharing that, but you should share that. If you get email, you can get the YouTubes. How many get the YouTubes in your email occasionally from Abundant Life? Two or three? Okay, four? <laughs> Something wrong with that. Make sure you can get our emails so that you can get a YouTube. Or if you you filtered out mon- monkey chimp or chimp mail or whatever, I don't know what it's called. But anyway, then you won't get it. But it's pretty astounding when we look at it because in our church, our church is more mature than the general population at large. Which means that if we want to reach people, especially young people, this is an important medium to have. And Jesse has done an amazing amount of work on keeping that up, and we need more people involved. If you like tech and you want to be trained on how to do this, we want you to do it. Um, One thing I wanted to do today is a bridge. I want to bridge between 23 and 24, and today is a launching of those, some of those ideals, the things that I think are most important, the thing that I think is most important for God's people at Abundant Life Church in 2024 is experiencing God. Just experiencing God. The Bible says, Hebrews says, those who come to God must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. I want to be the earnestly seeking part of that equation. So building is what we're going to be talking about doing in these next uh, few Sundays. Building begins with plans, and plans begin with a concept. And I've sat down many times when somebody wanted to build a building or a shed or remodel in their house. They wanted to draw. I've sat in a restaurant with people literally on the back of napkins and drawn out plans that have converted to uh, drawn plans, which went to an engineer, which wound up being the plans that we use 
to build the building. And, and in fact, I, Nancy, we did that, didn't we? We sat down at Mazatlan, and we started drawing the plans for your uh, cabin up in, the, up in the mountains that we built. And you can't get closer to God than what your concept of God will allow. This means conceptions work into plans, which works into building. If we want to understand the significance of faith and growing and having relationship with God, there may be some things that we need to break down before we can actually really experience him. If you don't believe that God loves you, you will never come to God, right? If you don't believe that God cares about you, the Bible says that we should boldly come before his throne room, come before him, that we have this confidence. And that word, uh, boldly, me, uh, means that, that, uh, to come without any hesitation, to just come always knowing that he is good, which is what he is. I want to establish this first premise in this service today by saying this, God is good. Psalm 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm, Psalm 31.19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. And then Psalm 33.5, I think I have those. Psalm 33.5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. We are inherently not good. A Christian bookseller um, uh, conference was happening, convention one time, and they were set up in the convention center, and 90% of the people that had a booth were asked this question, is man good? And 90% of them said, yes, that, God, that man is good. But you know, the Bible says that man is not good. Only God is good. I'm reminded of the rich young ruler in Scripture, and he comes to Jesus, and he's there, and, and he says, you know, I've done all these things. I've been a good boy since I was little. I've done everything right. I've, I've been in church, if I could translate a modern lingo. I don't cuss or chew or run with them that do, right? I mean, that's the kind of, I'm, I'm a good person. And, and so there's, there's this concept that he was all good, and Jesus said, hey, hey, if you give up everything and follow me, that's, he said, I'm, I can't do that. See, we're not good. Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, if you are evil, pointing to us, Matthew 7, 11, and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven good give, give good things to them that ask him? This is a powerful statement, right? Because we can be bad, we can be not good, and we're not good. But Scripture says that, hey, if you're not good and yet you love give, to give good, how many love to give gifts to your kids? I mean, I love Christmas time. And when they were little, and I would open, I would give them their gifts. Um, can you go to the next thing, the blank one? That's good. Um, give good gifts, and the kids would open their presents, and they would be excited, and, and when they opened them up, they were thrilled, and you know what that does to a father? I'm like, yes, I nailed it. Or when you give that perfect gift to your spouse, there's something about that perfect gift, and maybe it might get a little friendly afterwards, you know what I'm saying? But um, if you give good gifts, 
But he says, if you are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to them that ask him? All are evil, in other words, compared to God. He is only good. So when we say God is good, that statement carries a lot of weight. Romans 3.12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I love my kids. I love being a parent. I love my four boys. Every time I walked in the door when they were younger, it was a wrestling match on the floor. I got bombarded. It was a playful, joyful time. And uh, there's been more than one door damaged in our adventures together. Um, But it is true that our concept of God is really developed by our parents and their influence on our life more than anybody in this world. The best parent in the world is evil compared to God. We just established that, that God is truly only good. And even though you and I are not that good, we give good gifts, God is better. Genesis 1, 27, 28, God creates Adam and Eve, right? And in his image, he creates man and woman. And then he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And they were to be the image bearers of God. They, they, they looked, the Bible says he made them in his image. And they were to multiply. And, and anything parents do that is good, we naturally attribute to God. Anything that they do wrong or bad, um, we also attribute to God. And these things are true. In the book, Faith of Our Fathers, Paul Vitz writes, he documents the most popular atheists in the world, and it's a fascinating book if you can stand to read it. But the reasons they didn't want God to exist is because they didn't want their fathers to exist. He documents how that each one of them, famous atheists, hated their fathers, their earthly fathers. And Adam and Eve are portrayed in the image of God to their children, and that image of God was broken when they sinned and became corrupt. They became violent. And why did this happen? Because their image of God was broken. Satan comes to them in the form of a servant. He said, hey, has not God not said? In other words, hey, Adam and Eve, God's keeping something from you guys. He's not good. You need to listen to me. When I was um, growing up, my parents, you know, they're, I consider them awesome. Uh, my mom's not here this morning. I don't see her, but um, the good, the bad, and the ugly with all of us, right? They have the good, they had the bad, and they had the ugly. And fortunately for me, it was a lot more good than the bad and the ugly, but we've all got the bad and the ugly. I mean, don't nudge your spouse, but yeah, you've got it. This is the bottom line. There's none of us that are perfect. My friend, a friend of mine who's a pastor in Pennsylvania, he's um, been there for a number of years now, but he, he grew up in a very difficult, rough in, environment. I would consider difficult. His mom was a believer. His dad was in and out, and um, it was a tough situation. But he broke the chain because he recognized that his heavenly father was not at all like his earthly father. The only way we have an understanding of God, I believe, is through direct revelation. We need direct revelation. You know us. You know me. We always speak God's word. God's word is important. It's powerful. We preach through it, book by book, here at the church. That's our common practice, and this is a little different this morning. 
but we'll take it, we'll just preach through an entire epistle or an entire book of the Bible. And, and because the Bible is important, it gives us life lessons. It teaches us about the character of God and how God responds to mankind. It has historical context. It has prophetic context. It has a spiritual context and salvation for us today. It is life. It is love. But even the scriptures itself, the Bible is only an introduction to our maker. As good as it is, and we trumpet it, we teach it, we, we have it, still that, we, we don't, the, the, the purpose of, and the power of who God is is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The revelation of God. Have you experienced God? Have you tasted and seen that he is good and that there is nothing like him? This direct revelation is something that I want to take us through an account in history from Scripture. So in Exodus 33, who do we have? We have Moses, right? Moses is a terrible, wonderful mess. In Exodus 33, God is at a crossroads with Israel. In chapter 32, he's on Mount Sinai. Moses is up there for 40 days, right? And Aaron is put in charge. I mean, you can read this account. It's so funny because Aaron's put in charge, down with the people. Moses up for 40 days. Aaron thinks now, hey, you know, there's two and a half million people about maybe here in the desert, in the wilderness. Moses up on the mountain. We don't know what in the world's become of him. He thinks that he's dead. And finally, the people are saying, hey, as for Moses, we don't know where he's gone. He's gone up in the mountain. He's probably dead. He's probably been eaten by a wild man. We don't know what's going on with Moses. So we need a God. So make us a God, Aaron. And so Aaron, almost without hesitation, says, okay, break off your earrings, your, your fit, you know, break off all of your jewelry, bring it to me. And the Bible says he melted it down and he fashioned it with his tool in his hand. The Bible says this specifically. He fashioned it into a calf. Aaron did this. It was his deal. So Aaron makes this calf, and everybody's coming there worshiping the calf. Oh, wonderful. I don't know how they worshiped it. Yeah, whatever. They're used to the Egyptian gods, so there's a lot of things going on there. So they knew what to do. And Moses comes down the mountain. He sees, here's what's going on. It's not the sound of praise or worship or celebration. This is something different. So he throws the tablets down in anger. Remember, he breaks them. And he goes into the camp, and he goes and confronts Aaron. What in the world is going on here, Aaron? And Aaron's like, well, Moses, what are you doing here? And you know what Aaron's words are? You can read this yourself in the NIV. It's pithy. The King James is even funnier. He says, I don't know, Moses. I took the gold, threw it in the fire, and out popped this calf. Serious. That's what the Bible says. Out popped this calf. Like, I don't know what's going on. I just He's trying to defer, right? Well, uh, God's upset. He's upset with Aaron. And, and Moses throws the commandments, and he's, but he says, I'll honor my word with you. God says, I'll honor my word with you because I'm God. But I, I'll still take them into the promised land. But my intimate presence is not going to stay like it was because if it were, I would consume them. Have you ever considered that being close to God also reveals the things he likes and doesn't like? Catch that? God was so frustrated with them. But God reveals himself to Moses and teaches us about this direct revelation. So Moses' life experiences is going, he's going to, uh, is, he's going to be the preacher today. Moses and his life is what we're going to hear. And, and I'm, I'm only the mouthpiece. So having a personal revelation 
from God is what transforms our understanding of who God really is. A lot of resistance we have toward God, what God is doing in our life is because we really don't understand God's heart. A lot of resistance that we have toward what God is doing in our life is because I don't believe we really understand God's heart. That's there, right there, there it is. Four stages of Moses' revelation of who God really is. Number one, what, what can we learn? What do we need to do? Number one, we need to ditch the misrepresentation of God's reputation. We need to get rid of it. Let's take a look at the scripture here in Exodus 33 and verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, Parasites, excuse me. I know if you were going to catch that, I threw that in there. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm working here. Preaching is the art of communication. I'm trying hard. The Hittites and Jebusites. In verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Representation of, of the abundance of the land, right? But I will not go among you because lest I consume you on the way because you're a stiff-necked people. God is saying this. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, what did they do? They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. They, they didn't wear jewelry. They didn't wash their hair, nothing. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up with you, I would consume you. So I'll take off your ornaments that they may not um, do, know what to do with you. I don't, know what, I don't know what to do with you guys. You're a mess. Israel and God haven't really gotten along since the first day they met. When God comes to Moses and called him to deliver Israel, Moses says no. Remember? God allows Aaron to go with him. God gets angry with Moses because of the mark of circumcision he wouldn't do for his own son. And Israel has been complaining against God since the first day in the wilderness. They have just been moaning and complaining against him. Every time there isn't water, or there isn't food, or there's an enemy, they're constantly mistrusting God. Yet every time that they encounter these things, God provides or delivers. Why would Moses mistrust and not understand God so much? Well, who was Moses' father? Well, some Jew. We don't really know. In Exodus 1, we find this, the account in history where he's having to be hidden because there's a edict that's gone out from Pharaoh to destroy all Hebrew children, and so the males, and so he's hidden in a, in a basket floating in the river that Pharaoh's daughter finds him. You know the story. His, his mother takes him and puts him in a basket floating in the river and is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and so she takes Moses into Pharaoh's home. Now who's the father figure? The daughter brings him into the environment where this man tries to kill him when he's born, and again, when he's 40 years old, I mean, what an image from a father figure. Raised in 
Pharaoh's ideals, raised in the parentage of Pharaoh, and the gods of Egypt were to be feared. They were terrible, and so the, the reputation that they were trying to portray from the gods of Pharaoh, you had to sacrifice to save your life. There's a growing image in Moses' life of, of who God is by that environment that's cast on him. And so these gods had rules in, in Egypt. The, these false gods, there's, there's occult practices, there's required human blood in the sacrifices that demanded ritualistic homage. And, and so Moses really doesn't have any idea of a personal loving God. And consider where he's coming from. Um, he's coming from, there's, if there's no Bible at this point. There is this uh, ensconced oral tradition meticulously maintained and repeated over and over and over again, which was their custom so that they would know. So they say so they knew about creation. They knew about Noah. They knew about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they had a detailed account of their history and, and genealogies. They knew them by heart, the distances and names. They knew the time frames. They knew all of these things by heart. They really didn't have a comprehension of who God was. They only knew what he had done. They only knew what the YouTube channel was telling them. They only knew what they read. They only knew what they heard a preacher preach. They only knew what the tradition of their parents had told them. They never had an experience with God. They never spoke with God. They never felt or sensed the presence and power of His Holy Spirit. They've only made had acknowledgement from the information they knew. There was no revelation. So loving God, a loving God, hears the cries in Egypt, and what does he do? I'm recounting the history. God sends Moses, and he hears the cries because of the burden of their slavery. They're calling out to God. They remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know that this is their heritage, and, and God sends a deliverer, and here comes Moses. At this point, having fled Egypt, appears to him in a burning bush, and he has the audacity to say no. And the entire time that God is trying to get them out, they accuse him, they mistrust God, they accuse Moses, they don't like the messenger, and there's a huge back and forth constantly. So, so what does God do? He calls them a stiff-necked people. Yeah, I would say so. I want us to hear this, though, friends. A lot of resistance we have toward God and what God may be doing is because we really don't understand his heart. Moses had done more miracles than any man alive, yet he didn't know God. Why? Because the example of God came from the re a reputation of, of hostility toward God. A father who didn't really know the true God people's conversion to God is because oftentimes because of God's damaged reputation and, and it's time to ditch that damaged reputation. This generation is knowledge without revelation. Did you know that's one of the prophecies being fulfilled before our very eyes? The scripture says that because of the increase of knowledge in the last day, the love of most will grow cold, the love of many, even to deceive the very elect, meaning that right now on your cell phone, you can ask Siri any question in the world that you want. And she'll tell you what it is, right? It doesn't have to be true knowledge. It just has to be knowledge. The increase of knowledge will grow so much, and then the end will come. So I believe Jesus is coming. That's my two cents worth. If you don't know him, get right with God or you're going to hell. Um, number two, ask God to reveal his glory to you. 
So ditch the misrepresentation of God. I think sometimes we need to unpack all the stuff that maybe our tradition may have taught us. And I grew up in this thing. I know what it's like. I, I was, it's, the one song says I was born on Saturday and then church on Sunday and, my, and I was never late. That was that's just my story. I grew up this way. I, 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 that's just who I am. Some did and they came to Christ later in life. But we're all believers on this journey together, aren't we? And we're all so grateful that God loves us and that we responded to his love by accepting him into our life and saying, Jesus, I am in awe of you. I need your presence. Unpacking that and then asking God to reveal his glory. In verse 19, look at Exodus 33, 19. And, and he said, I will, God speaking to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses asked God, show me your glory. What a statement. What a question, right? And so because Moses realizes he's missing something about who God really is, so what is God's glory? What is glory? Glory is what you're famous for, the essence of your character. Moses wants to know God. Thirdly, Moses would teach us today to set aside preconceived notions and experience God as he truly is. The next scripture here is important because this is not a man telling God who he is, but this is God telling man who he is. Everywhere else in the Bible, we have people describing God, his relationship with them, except for some examples of Jesus talking. Everywhere else in Scripture, people are talking about God, how God responded to them. They're recording the history of what God did. But right here in the Scripture is the only place that we find God talking to someone and saying, this is who I am. These are the qualities of my character. I'm about ready to tell you who I am. Despite what you think about me from your past, despite what you think about me from your upbringing or your religious experiences, despite what you might think of me because of what you've been taught before or, or the, the doctrine that we get today is we learn more from the doctrine from movies and music than we do the Bible. And God's getting ready to say, wait, all that stuff is counterfeit. I'm getting ready to tell you personally, Moses, who I am. So this next scripture is very important. In verse thir chapter 34 and verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before and proclaimed the Lord, the God, uh, excuse me, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquities of the father on the children, on the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. So, wow, God reveals himself to Moses and says, there are seven things about me that I need for you to understand, Moses. So put away all of your filters, put away all of the things you've learned up to this point, get rid of your preconceived notions about who I am, get rid of your tradition, I need to tell you about who I am. First of all, he says, I am merciful. He starts first thing with the word mercy. He comes to Moses and says, I am merciful. Mercy is undeserved compassion. It's undeserved compassion that desires to help. 
God did not only see what we're doing in life. He wants to help. He wants to help you, friend. He doesn't just see what you're doing. He wants to help you. He knows the attacks against you. He knows that as people in this world, as Jesus saw when he looked at the Jerusalem from the mountain, that we are harassed all the time. How many feel harassed all the time? It's like something's up in your business. The enemy's tempting you in some way. You're being harassed and attacked. God just doesn't see our life and the things that are wrong. He says, I'm merciful. He sees the pain of your past. He knows how you failed. He knows what you've been given in life to deal with. He knows the parentage you, you've been raised with, and, and he knows every situation. I, I look at some people sometimes, and, you know, I don't know about you, but I used to judge people to a certain degree. Oh, man, that person. But then when you get to know them, if you sat down and got to know, you realize why they're acting that way, and you come, man, I can't realize why. I don't know how you're so normal. I mean, you seem so freaky until I get to know you. Now, I don't know how, now I understand. Now I, I don't know how you could be so normal. God is compassionate. By comparison, I'm not. I, I'm evil. As the Bible says, it, we are not good. Only God is good. It's the first thing God says about himself. He says, I am merciful. The reason that uh, he says that you guys don't understand me. He's talking to Israel. The reason that you don't understand me is that you've never really known me. You haven't known me as being merciful. You've only known about me. I'm unlike all the other gods, the gods of Egypt. I am merciful. Hebrews 4.14 says, For we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us uh, hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Aren't you glad for that? And then he says, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Boldly means frank speech. How many have been frank with someone before? Some of you are frank every time I meet you. But this means come before God and just say it, man. This is the kind of God that's merciful. He can take it. Second, the second thing he says about himself, he says, I'm gracious. Grace means free help on every level that is granted without merit or performance. I have a little acrostic here for that. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Mercy is not giving you everything you deserve based on compassion. Grace, however, is giving you everything you don't deserve uh, on grace and not merit. Mercy is God's emotional disposition, if you will, toward us, while grace is God's willingness to do for us based on his compassion and his mercy for us. God is able to make all grace abound to you. That's what the Bible says. We are all weak. Consider all the areas of grace that we need. Mental grace. How many need mental grace? Well, how many are married? You need mental grace. Lead us into your truth. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, will do this. Having this John 16, 13, mental grace. We have weak minds. The Holy Spirit will give us mental grace more than we're able on our own. The number one visit for young people, kids in the the emergency rooms is, is stress and mental-related things more than broken arms. Can you believe that? Physical grace, Romans 8, 11. In other words, if, we, if the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, that song that we sang earlier, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, 
The same power that can cause the dead to wake lives in us. Lives in us. Good stuff, right? And not the singing. I don't mean that. The statement, right? The same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. Emotional grace. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit working in your life. He will give you his personality. He will give you his personality by the power of the Spirit. We don't have uh, the emotional grace we need for life, but God will give it to us by his Spirit. Spiritual grace. Acts 1.8, that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, right? And you'll have power to do the works of God and serve him. Financial grace. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, the context of 2 Corinthians 9 is, is money. Excuse me, but Paul is taking an offering from them, and, and that's where he says that God is able to make grace abound to you, that, that God knows what you need, and he is able to give it to you. Get this, friends. God identifies him, he, himself here as a loving parent father. He takes that role for you and I in our lives as a loving father, one who cares because he is good, the definition of good that only he can provide. Then he says, I'm long-suffering. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God is willing to suffer long on your behalf and my behalf. Isn't that good? Sometimes I give him a lot of things to suffer for. On your worst day, friends, God is your best friend. When you dive into that familiar sin, God will never leave you. Don't beat yourself up. When you've lost that battle in, the, in a horrible day, God will never leave you. When you have failed time and time again, God will suffer long for you. When your addictions come back and maybe you jump right into them to haunt you, God is always there. Many have this idea of God's disappointment, and so we beat ourselves up and black and blue and because we don't want to face him. And we kill ourselves over this when God says the whole time, I am long-suffering. There's not too far that you can go where his grace isn't one step back. Now, it requires our humility to say, God, forgive me, but this is the condition of his grace. He is a long-suffering, I'm a long-suffering father. Probably not as much, many as some of you, but some more than others, maybe. Oh, my kids would fail or do something. And there have been times where I would maybe get angry. Or there are times when I understood they were children and it actually make me laugh a little bit. Even though I had to help them at that point. But God's not like me. He's long-suffering in every situation. So here's the truth. I am evil. God is not. God is long-suffering. I am not. You are not. God is patient. You are not, at least not like God. He is not frustrated with you ever, not in any human scale that you can equate to. It's far beyond. So I want us to hear something. It might surprise some of you, so here it goes. The day that you met God, he knew you were a long project. He knew you were along with lots of O's project. He's not surprised. God will not give up or get angry. Heavenly Father will be with you. Fourth, he says, I'm abounding in goodness. God is always good in every situation, no matter what is happening. He has no bad days. God has no bad moods. You were, you, 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 if you were raised in a moody environment, 
You may view God that way, but God isn't schizo like you. That's right. God has no bad days or bad moods. And God is not just good when you're good. Come on now. Some of us grew up with this idea, if I'm bad, I'm going to have to endure so much suffering in order for I can attain, attain goodness and good. Give yourself the grace of God, would you? Open your heart up to God's grace and receive it. He says, I'm abounding in truth. God never lies, never breaks promises, or in any way misrepresents himself to us. God is always truthful. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. My truth. And he promises things to us. And he never makes a promise that he will not give. He is forgiving, he says in this list. The sixth thing, God says, I'll always forgive. I don't keep a record of wrong. It's like the love chapter describes. There's no record of wrongs here. Remember Peter asked Jesus, he said, hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? 70 times seven? Is that enough? And Peter's like, well, um, and Jesus is like, uh, well, no, Peter, hold on a second. It's never ending. That's how I am. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his, our transgression from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. And finally, he says, what? I'm just. God has rules, and there are consequences when people violate them, but God is gracious and forgives no matter what. He's going to make, he is a just judge. He's going to divvy out judgment based. In fact, the Bible says that in heaven, in our eternal reward, the rewards are actually given to us by the Father himself. It's not divvied up like you go to the DMV and get a number, 41, come and get your, this is God himself. And the rewards are based upon how we loved and served him in this life. We're all going to get to heaven if we know Jesus. But there are actual rewards that God gives and different levels of those rewards that are given for those believers in heaven by the Father for how you served him in this world. Did you know that? Some Christians say, oh, I'm glad I'm just going to heaven and when you come for the, you know, the Easter lilies and, and the, the Christmas poinsettias, and that's about the only time we see or hear from our church family. But God says, you know what? I love you. Hebrews 12, 7, 9 says he, as sons, as we are like his sons, his children, and disciplines those that he loves. Listen to this, friends. If you're, you feel like you're going under the Lord's discipline, I want us to realize something. God gives discipline to each one of us based upon what he sees our needs are as people. He knows we are different. And hear this. Our disciplines are different than the judgment that comes on unbelievers. Because we are sons and daughters, he's disciplining us now because unbelievers are judged for eternity later. Would you rather be disciplined now or judged in eternity? We receive our discipline now as sons and daughters, and that's good news. So, friends, in short, God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, truth, and just. That's our God. And that's who God says he is. It's not Moses's interpretation. That's not um, some other thing. That's God describing himself. And so if we see God who re he really is and, and change our concept of him that way and understand this, his mercy and grace is sufficient according to his own definition, man, I would live in his lap. I would want to be in the presence of God 
as much as I possibly could. I, understanding a person on such a grandeur scale compared to human compassion, long-suffering, mercy, and grace is not to be compared. I want that above anything this world has to offer. That means I want to pursue my Heavenly Father. If we see God who He really is, change our concept of Him, we would be as close to Him as we could possibly get. We would enjoy God and life because our old ideas, our old filters have been removed and we see Him now like He is. And this was Moses' problem. He couldn't see for God for who He really was. and He had to get over it. He said, I need to see your glory. I think this is the missing element. Seeing and experiencing God means experiencing his power, who he is. Now Moses went through the last uh, change before all of this was over, and he started only reacting to God by what he knew of God's past. And now he's getting a revelation of God. Now God reveals himself, and he's kind of confused a little bit, to be honest. God hits him with who he is, and he's like, whoa, that's not what I've always thought. I thought you were a God that was going to crush me when I failed. I thought you were a God that was not compassionate and long-suffering. I did not know this about you. So he's confused, and he, he needs a touch from God. And I, I've seen this experience. We had a master's commission group come years ago, a group of students studying for ministry. And they, on a Sunday night service, they were here. Uh, back when we used to have Sunday nights, remember those services? They were kind of ruckus and very Pentecostal, right? <laughs> anyway, these kids are here, and they're, of course, they're praying down fire from heaven. They're ministry students. They're like, yeah, God, you empower. And one of our uh, board members was also our piano player at the time. His name was Mike. Grew up in church. Good man. His wife was our secretary at the church at the time. Wonderful young family. Um, smart guy. Um, and he's playing piano, and, and this group comes, and, and so we're praying at the altar. He's kneeling right there by those uh, plants. He's, he's kneeling down, and I'm praying with him, and I didn't know what was going on. It was kind of chaotic, people praying all over the room, and, and he, um, I come to pray for him, and he puts his hands down right here, and he looks up at me, and he says, is this the God you've always known? My heart was broken. It's like, how can you grow up in church under preaching in, in, in a worship service and, and not experience God. Only know about him. Only know the do's and don'ts and rules made of men. How can you possibly never really experience God? And friends, I contend that this is the status of most of the church. That the place of experiencing God is lost because we just want to know, we just want to pay our tithe and pray, pay, and go away. And God says, hold on, there, there, there's more there's, there's actually a relationship with me that is hinges on everything else. This is what else Moses would say to us. Fourth thing and final thing, respond to who God really is. First of all, Moses worshiped God. Exodus 34, verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Worship is, of God is, is based on how we really see him. Worship isn't getting caught up in the beauty of the song and the rocket's red glare. It's a beautiful song, and every time I hear it, I get chills. America, America, the patriotic stuff, you know, like, wow, that's really great. That's awesome. That moves me. I'm not talking about getting chills because the song is beautiful or oh, good performances. Aren't they awesome? 
I could listen to Dan Vask, heavy metal singer, sing Amazing Grace a hundred times. He's like my, when I, you know. And that's good. Good performances are awesome. We can be moved by them. But just to be moved by God alone, him and you, meeting with him, having revelation just over information. So he bows his head and worships, 38 verse 4, and this is the first time Moses has ever worshipped, right here. At least what we have recorded, he worshipped. Number two, Moses gained self-worth. Exodus 34 verse 9 says, He said, Now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for this is stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity for our sin. And take us for your inheritance. Take us for your inheritance. Have you ever told that to the Lord? Take me, God, as your inheritance. Moses now identifies value with a direct relationship. Riddle me this. If for generations now, young people have been told that they came from goo and evolved from monkeys, and there's nothing after this life. There's no hope. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no salvation or deliverance from the guilt and pressure of your own sin. What value is there in life then? When you and I see ourselves through the eyes of a loving, powerful creator, we see something else. We see something eternal, something with purpose. And here Moses is, right here says, God, take me as your inheritance. There is more to this life than living or dying. Thirdly, the thing that changed was his witness. In verse 29 of chapter 34, when Moses came down from the mountain of Sinai, two tablet testimony, he came from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. <laughs> I mean, that's like freaky, right? I mean, he comes off the mountain. In fact, it was so alarming that people, the children of Israel said, Whoa, you talk to God for us? We're okay down here. It was that predominant. The power of this, though, is that his witness changed. His face is shining. You know, I believe that God wants to shine through your countenance and my countenance, his glory, the goodness of his power. If you don't share God, you really don't know him. Wow. Why? Because he is someone that would leave more of an impression on you than your own spouse. When you meet somebody and say, hey, really, are you married? Yeah, oh, my wife, she's the, she's the bomb, she's the best. You would talk about her or him, wouldn't you? So what does God desire from us to experience, for us to experience, like Moses, his direct presence? Why do we respond to his presence? Because he is good. And finally, how do we respond to his presence? Humble ourselves, open our hearts, and worship him. In 1976, there was um, Dr. S.M. Lockridge, pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. And um, this pastor was quite a fiery preacher. And as Jack Hayford said, probably the best sermon ever preached in the history, or at least in the history of the world from the time of Jesus. 
And I want to play for you a clip of that video. And then I want to call us to worship, to worship the Lord and pray together. As you watch this, try to recollect some of the things Moses was going through. Jesus, I thank you for your great love for us today and pray that you be glorified and magnified in us. And for every life that is here, that we would break down our misconceptions, our traditions, some of the things that hold us back from really knowing you, our, even our hurts and our wounds, and step into revelation, relationship, and intimacy with you through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the lostest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. 
You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king.